Hello, and welcome to the China Problem episode of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Simon of Axios, here with Emily Peck of Axios. Hi. With Elizabeth Spires of New York Times and other places. Hello. And we are going to talk about China. We're going to talk about how they seem to be throwing a spanner in the works of international sovereign debt restructuring. We are going to talk about collectibles and why people are spending tens of thousands of dollars on videotapes of Rocky. We are going to be talking about mortgages and why a whole bunch of people who should really be able to get a mortgage can't get a mortgage. We have a slate plus segment about Rupert Murdoch, which presages this coming Monday's Slate Money succession. It's all coming up on Slate Money. So let's start with sovereign debt, because that's always my favorite subject, Um, and specifically countries that are in debt trouble that have defaulted or that might soon default. Zambia being Exhibit A because it has been in default for over two years now, but there are lots of others, including Ghana. And the big thing that everyone in Washington was talking about this week, because this week was the spring meetings of the IMF and the World Bank, is that these debts are too high. The debt-to-GDP ratios are much higher, and the debt-service-to-GDP ratios are much higher than they've been for many, many years. And in many cases, they need to be restructured. And yet again, we have found ourselves in a situation where we just don't know how that's going to happen. Um, When it was mostly bank loans, it took many, many, many years for the bank loans to get restructured because people were worried that the banks would wind up going bust. Then when it was bonds, people didn't know how the bonds would get restructured because you couldn't get unanimous approval among bondholders because there are just too many of them. And now it's an interesting twist, which is that the problem isn't banks owning loans and it's not bondholders owning bonds. It's China owning a bunch of debt. And China just doesn't seem to have any particular desire to play along with debt restructurings and take its, you know, haircut. Yeah, and it's really interesting, Felix, and it's me saying this, okay? So it's been several years of you talking about debt restructuring in poor countries and me not really being interested. But now I'm peaked. My interest is peaked. Um, China only recently started playing in this market and lending money to these poor nations. And it's not playing by the rules, <laughs> the rules established basically by the... The common uh, framework. The common framework. Um, but it's like the, the the economic order in which certain players are in charge. The the Paris Club is some a, a phrase that gets thrown out. The you Paris Club is. is bilateral creditors. So historically, it was, you know, the rich countries. It was the UK, the US, France, Italy... You know, those kind of countries that would lend money to poorer countries wind wind up as creditors in, you know, in default mm-hmm. um, and then would have to negotiate deals. And they would always negotiate them in some like horrible basement room in the French Treasury. And 
these negotiations would go on all night and they were very fraught. But eventually, but there was a pretty formal mechanism for doing these negotiations. And once you came to a deal with the Paris Club, all of the members of the Paris Club would sign on to that deal. Like that was given. That's why you would, that, you know, that's how the, the Paris Club could basically bind these sovereigns. And now um, China is just not doing it right. And, <laughs> and so like, what happened is, is that like, it stopped just being rich countries who are creditors anymore, right? So, you know, you would get like, Romania would be a creditor here, Russia would be a creditor there, you know, these kind of things, mem countries that were never members of the Paris Club. But then the big change happened, you know, uh, a decade or two ago when China started being a big lender to these countries. And China was never on board with this whole Paris Club process. And of course, it took a while from China starting to lend in serious quantities to countries and the first of those countries actually defaulting. Like it doesn't happen immediately. But now we have reached the point where a bunch of countries that owe money to China have defaulted and you don't need to owe much for this to be a big problem. And some of them really have large, important debts to China. But some of them, it's not huge but it's still important because no one is going to take a haircut, whether they're private sector or public sector, if China doesn't. So you need to you need to bring China in to the process. But the process has always been based either in Paris or in Washington or in London, you know, the big like Western um, capitals, basically. So the Paris Club was the bilateral creditors, the London Club was the bank creditors, the private sector creditors. Um, the IMF was in Washington. And this is all, you know, as you say, you're quite right about this, the Bretton Woods international order, basically put together by the Americans in 1945. And China's just looking at that and going like, why should we play by America's rules? Yeah, I think they, they've also explicitly stated that part of the reason why they're doing this is because they historically, you know, wealthier Western countries are handling this and, and it's a geopolitical advantage for them to rack up all of this debt restructuring. They're basically using it to sort of undermine pieces of the Western global financial architecture. Wait, wait, they being China? Yes. And, and they're putting a spanner in the restructuring works in order to hurt the Western countries? Well, in the beginning of the year, you know, they were asking the IMF and the World Bank to participate in debt restructuring, uh, which, you know, would overturn what historically happens, which is that those organizations are exempt from debt restructuring. So, yeah, the IMF and the World Bank have what's known as preferred creditor status. So by um, convention, they always get paid back in full. Although when we say paid back in full, like there are different ways you can pay back the IMF and the World Bank in full. And one way is just by taking out another loan to repay the old one. So, you know, there's a lot of sort of extend and pretend going on as well in, in those cases. But the idea there, right, and it makes sense in theory, is that the IMF and the World Bank are owned by the all, you know, the countries of the world. They're basically um, another form of state creditor, right? And so if they get paid back in full and the state creditors individually just take bigger haircuts, economically that's equivalent to if the preferred creditors 
take a little haircut and everyone else takes a slightly smaller haircut. But it's just a lot more elegant this way to keep that preferred creditor status to make sure they keep their AAA credit rating, and so on and so forth. Like, in terms of um, sort of financial efficiency, it makes sense for the MDBs, the multilateral development banks to to have that preferred creditor status. Um, Yeah, I'm not sure that I, I feel like China's attempt to try and get them to take a haircut is is basically a delaying tactic. Um, and they do seem to just be dragging their feet a lot on this. Um, and I don't quite understand why delaying this helps them. It certainly doesn't help the debtor countries who are trying to restructure their debts. It feels like a power play, like just for China to, sh- to flex and say, like, we're a part of this now and we're not just going to go along with whatever the West wants, like you were saying earlier, or whatever the convention is. Like, let's take a fresh look at it. Let's do it our way. And like, oh, by the way, we're here now kind of a thing. So I, I feel like that's half correct, right? They They are very mistrustful of these Western institutions. They don't want to just go along with whatever the... Bretton Woods institutions say this it is a very western centric system and if a system was designed by the United States then it's on some level it's going to favor the United States and yeah. the Chi- and you can see why China might not be happy about that what we aren't seeing however is any um proposed alternative from mm-hmm. Beijing right what we're not seeing is them saying we've done it your way too often enough let's do it our way they they don't there is no Chinese way of doing it. They haven't come out with a proposal at all. That is a puzzle. Yeah, and there's a great quote from a, a lawyer who works on this kind of restructuring where he says something like, uh, you know, having China in this situation be as aggressive as, as they are, it is kind of like uh, you already have a system that's like someone having a bad cold and they can't get rid of it, who is then impaled by a spear. And so they still have a cold, but the doctor's going to focus on the spear. And that's the sort of chaos that China is causing right now in this debt restructuring system. Is it such a great system? No, it's a terrible... No, like, it seems <laughs> awful to me. So like, just it, give the countries money. Why are we structuring the... Like, who? go on. Go, oh, all right. So, like, <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I mean, like, you know, uh, there is, there is a, um, a school of thought... Emily, that is is not too far from what you're saying, which is basically um, we should have much less sovereign debt overall, yeah. and that the World Bank should concentrate on grants rather than loans. Yes, that the IMF becomes a much less important financial player, um, and that even we strengthen the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act so that private sector lenders basically stop lending to countries because countries under sovereign immunity would never need to pay it back. And so you just basically get the amount of cross-border sovereign lending, you know, drops by, I don't know, 50, 75, 90%. Um, and then you don't have restructuring issues. Fine, but you also don't have those enormous cash flows going into countries which want the money and really kind of count on it a lot of the time especially when they're running budget deficits you need to fund that somehow um and so yeah if you talk to any finance minister of a you know 
African country or a Latin American country or something and say, how would you feel about like being cut off from the international debt markets altogether, both bilateral and private? They would be like, please don't do that. That's a mm-hmm. terrible idea. Right. They need the money. This is a good way to get the money. But it's also a terrible way to get the money <laughs> because now they're in like a country like um, Zambia is in this limbo where it has all this debt that it's defaulted on and it hasn't been restructured and they can't spend money on other things. Like they're really hamstrung now, right? And and it's just such a well, – so, I mean, let's, these countries let's be, sort of like powerless, it well, what do like. you What do you mean when you say they can't spend money on other things? They don't have – liquidity it would seem to me if they're in default on a loan right or or maybe they do if they're in default they're not so, so at the margin right this is actually a negative cost of default right at the margin if you are a highly indebted african country and you have been spending a huge chunk of your tax revenues on debt service, and then one morning you wake up in default and you're no longer spending those revenues on tax service, you can then spend those revenues domestically on, you know, building schools and building roads and cleaning water and doing all of the other things that governments do, right? So on in the short term, it actually frees up money to spend right. money on other things. But that's like when I stopped paying my student loans after I left graduate school because I couldn't right. afford it. And I needed right. the money to like pay my rent and stuff. Right. So I guess it was good theoretically, but it yeah. hamstrings me for the future because I can't take out any other loans or take on any other new debt or do anything really with my money except just sort of like make it day to day. Right, exactly. So what it does is it makes it much more difficult to... Borrow money from abroad. Right. You know, you can still borrow money domestically, right? You can still go to your local banks and borrow money and your local, you know, individuals and borrow money. Like, local debt still happens. Um, And, you know, Argentina operated with various degrees of success while being in default for well over a decade. It can be done. It's not pleasant. It does make integration into the rest of the international economy difficult and especially if you have private sector creditors who get judgments against you then you start need to worry you start worrying about like you know is my aircraft carrier going to be attached by elliott associates to some hedge fund in new york you know that it's not pleasant but uh, you know there is a reason why countries default and it does free up liquidity in cash and then there is no commonly accepted playbook really for how to get out of default it's always a little bit um ad hoc and the imf tried to create this thing called the sovereign debt restructuring mechanism sdrm like a decade ago that went nowhere um and so now their new version of this is this thing called the common framework but in order for any of these things to work you need to get buy-in from the large countries who basically control the process and China is undeniably now one of those countries and it's undeniably not um, being brought in. So like it, it has made a couple of sort of noises of welcoming the common framework. It just doesn't seem to have actually done anything in practice. Also to Emily's point, you know, a lot of Zambia's debt is really just, they, they have their inner ears with a lot of their government contractors. So if those companies aren't, Doing the things that government contractors do, not building new infrastructure, uh, you know, the things that keep the country functioning, that would seem to be a problem. 
Right. So this is one of the things you tend to find a lot in like ICSID cases, which is the, you know, the arm of the World Bank that um, deals with, with exactly that kind of thing, is that if you are like a big, say, French railway equipment manufacturer, and, you know, some African government has given you a contract to build a railway, um, then if the government goes into arrears on what it owes you, you're probably not going to just keep on working for them, you know, or you're going to only work for them on very onerous terms and like cash in advance and, and that kind of stuff. So yeah, like being in default, either to your contractors or to your, you know, bondholders or to sovereign lenders is not pleasant. No one, no one is saying it's nice. And so therefore that is why almost every country that's in default wants to get out of default and wants to do a restructuring. So it's clear it's clear that the data countries have an incentive to come to a deal, but they need an interlocutor on the other side of the table, right? They need someone who they can negotiate with. And it makes sense that the other countries, you know, that just like negotiating a deal with, with the IMF and with France and the United States and the UK and whatever and even like private sector bondholders um, will always end up being contingent on the Chinese not just getting 100 cents on the dollar, right? No creditor is going to put up with that. And it seems like the bigger picture here is just what, I mean, what it's in your book, Felix, and what people have been talking about for the past two years, which is that the way the global economy is structured is changing and we're moving away from kind of the old ways and China's moving in and there's a de I guess people talk about a decoupling. This isn't really a decoupling. It's just that China's entrance onto the, the global stage is complicating things in in all different kinds of ways. And this is one of the ways. Yeah. It, it, it's part of that, like new, not normal weird shit is going to happen. And one of the things I do talk about in the book is this idea of, a liminal period where we like enter into this period where we don't know how it's going to end. And I feel mm -hmm. like in terms of sovereign debt restructuring, that's definitely where we're at right now. Yeah. We know that we've entered this new sort of um, rite of passage, you know, where like we're moving from a world where all of the big sovereign lenders were aligned and could like meet in a room in Paris and negotiate on each other's behalves. And we are, entering a new more sort of bipolar world where where china is much more important and there are many many countries around the whole world that have received money as part of the belt and road initiative and that you know china is now an important creditor and we don't know what that new world is going to look like but we do know that it doesn't look like the world we're in right now the problem is there are defaults right now there are a whole bunch of debt service problems right now and we need to deal with these things right now. And there's no mechanism for doing that in a world where China isn't really cooperating. And there's a great quote, um, and, and we should share that Financial Times piece in the show notes. And there's a great quote in the piece um, where someone says, we spent 20 years focusing on contractual tweaks, assuming bonds were the problem and like tweaking how 
how it all works at this like very micro level. And then she says, but the problem is the state of global politics, like all of this lending, bilateral lending, whatever it's, it's, it really all is about politics, not really about like the structuring of who gets paid back or who takes the first haircut. Like those are all the details, but the space you're playing in is geopolitics, right? Right. So yeah, exactly. So there was this period from, say, the early 80s to the 2010s, where the really hard nut to crack when it came to sovereign debt restructuring was the private sector. The, trying to get the private sector to restructure sovereign debt was really hard. And a whole bunch of people spent a whole bunch of time working out solutions to those problems, first after the Latin American debt crisis of the 1980s and then after the Argentina default. Um, and the solutions to those problems really were contractual. They, they were, you know, collective action clauses in bond contracts and these kind of things. And they, mm -hmm. they, they, they were real problems and they were mm -hmm. real solutions. Now we have a new problem to which the solution is not contractual because the problem is not bond contracts. You know, the, the problem is China. So let's take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll talk about more debt, only this time mortgages. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Hello, I'm Imi Harper. On the slow newscast from Tortoise, I tell the story of how a Hong Kong billionaire was silenced. I got bombs thrown into my house. I got people came here, ransacked my computer. And I, I got people fractured me. I got this and that, but I'm safe. And what it reveals about the freedoms Hong Kong no longer enjoys. Listen to Hong Kong's Rebel Billionaire on the Slow Newscast, wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. So in my newsletter last week, I wrote quite a bit about this idea that there's a problem in the mortgage system in America. And it's a very unfelix idea because as every Slate Money listener probably knows at this point, I'm kind of opposed to home ownership and I don't think that home ownership is a particularly good thing and I don't think that like most people should necessarily own homes. Um, but 
let's just say for the sake of argument that home ownership is a good thing, and it's certainly the case that a lot of people want to own homes. There does seem to be roughly a million people a year who, if the mortgage system worked reasonably healthily, would be able to buy houses, and who can't. And the reason they can't is because while their credit is good, it isn't spectacular. And since the financial crisis of 2008, basically mortgage lenders have not been willing to lend money to anyone with sub-spectacular credit. The problem, we've gone from like subprime is something we all want to get into to sub-spectacular is something we want no part of. Yeah, it's really, it's interesting. It's like, on the one hand, it's a very good thing because lending to people who shouldn't get mortgages was in part why we had a financial crisis. Um, so good on the banks for not doing that anymore. Um, but it it almost seems like, I don't know if it's accurate to say they've gone too far now and they're not lending. I think, um, I think it is they, accurate. I think, I, think, I think that is accurate, yeah. They, they have a, you know, a structural incentive to pull back on... Uh, loaning to people who are have subpar credit now, which is that they you know resell the loans to GSEs, and they still and they manage the payments. There's three payments, but if the customer defaults, they still have to pay the GSEs. So, you know, it creates an incentive to only issue loans to people with spotless credit who are absolutely not going to default. Right. There's a there's a liquidity problem here. Um, ultimately, the GSEs guarantee the loans. And so what happens when a homeowner goes into, a, into arrears is that the servicer keeps on um, sending those payments, those mortgage payments, to the GSEs on the understanding that ultimately, if there is a full-on default and it winds up going into foreclosure or the house gets, gets sold or whatever you know, the servicer will get that money back one way or another eventually. But in the short term, in terms of their own liquidity, they still need to make those payments. And what that has meant is that the servicers just don't want to service any kind of loans that are likely to go into arrears. Um, you know, they're not taking credit risk really but there is a, it's a kind of first derivative of credit risk which is like a bunch of like negative liquidity that they wind up facing in the event of arrears that does end up getting paid back with 100% certainty by the government it just you don't quite know how long that's going to take it is interesting how it's this like hidden it's a hidden problem in the housing market that people probably because you, you're not thinking about those million people who would get mortgages that aren't getting them now because credit standards are tightening. You're thinking of the people who can't buy houses because mortgage rates are so high or because home prices are up like 30 or 40% from where they were two years ago. But here's this other hurdle to home ownership, which all wouldn't be a problem if home ownership weren't this like really good deal. I know, Felix, you don't like it, but like for Americans, home ownership is a very good deal. It's great protection against inflation. You get incredible tax breaks. Um, and it's it's hard to find comparable real estate as a renter. Um, that's changed a little bit over the past few years. With, there's more single family rentals available now, but not really. In contrast to what you think, I, it's still a good thing that, that people you know should do and want to do 
if they can well, afford it. As, as a matter of policy, you know, we incentivize it in this country in a way that mm-hmm. it's not necessarily incentivized in countries like Germany, where people are more likely to rent and, you know, renting isn't stigmatized the way it is here. The other thing that I've been thinking about a lot, um, and I probably should do a story about it and report some more on it, but um, the other thing, did you already mention that banks were pulling out of the mortgage business already? Like for years, this has been happening and these like non-bank entities are the ones making most of the mortgages these days, right? Right. And the non-banks, as far as I know, are not as um, accountable to some of the standards around like anti-discrimination laws as the banks are. I'd have to look into it, but I think it's more like uh, they, they, it's a little more are, opaque. They are equally accountable, right? They, they are still governed by the CFPB um, and the CFPB can crack down on them. But the thing about these non-bank lenders is they it's very easy to spin one up and it's very easy to close one down. And a bunch mm-hmm. of them have been closing down in recent months just as interest rates have gone up. And so if the CFPB comes down on you as a lender saying, you know, you've been discriminating, you're like, oh, my bad, and you just shut up shop. And it's like it, it's almost like a no harm, no foul thing because there's very little equity value in these things, right? What The way the, these non-bank lenders work is they just make money on each loan and then they, they don't really have brands no one you know with the exception of of rocket which is the big one most of these non-bank lenders aren't don't spend a lot of money on branding they just like build up they just phone up a bunch of like mortgage brokers and say like you know this is our price and if they have the best price they get the deal and then they flip it to fanny and freddie and it's a it's a very commoditized unbranded kind of business to be in a lot of the time. And so, yeah, the the stick that is wielded by the CFPB is is much less scary in their case. You know, if you're a bank, you don't want the CFPB coming down on you. It's not just about the CFPB, though. There are other regulators and other reporting requirements that banks have to adhere to that I don't think non-banks have to adhere yeah, to. That's why the, I need to do the story. The yeah, no, the reporting requirements, yeah. you're right. Yeah. So... We, so there's more opacity with the non-bank lenders in, in terms of like who they're lending to, where you could sort of like look for structural discrimination or other kinds of discrimination beyond like the kinds of things the S, the CFPB, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau might be looking for. It just becomes a more opaque environment, um, mortgages, which you don't want because like Elizabeth said, this is this is a market that exists because the government made it so. No other country has 30-year mortgages. No, no other country is, it's basically standing up this whole, this whole business. Um, right. The, the and then giving people breaks, you know, what the prepayable mortgage, it's a financial product that should not exist. It makes right. no sense. And, and the reason it may, we have it in the United States is because the government has made it so. Um, and, and so, yeah, it, it is now, we are now in a world where like 90% of the mortgages made in, um, America are guaranteed by the government. Uh, they're, right. they're, they're either directly guaranteed by the government in the form of guarantees from FHA or VA or someone like that, or they're purchased by government agencies in the form of Fannie, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, Ginnie Mae. Um, and there's just this tiny little sliver of what's known as jumbo mortgages that are still really originated and held by banks. And that's the one area where banks still have the majority of the lending, right? You mm-hmm. get very few 
non-banks in jumbos. The non-banks mm-hmm. just work. They don't want to take credit risk because they don't have much in the way of balance sheet. They can't afford to take credit risk, right? So the non-banks do the 90% of the lending that's like government-backed, and then the banks do the last 10% that isn't. I was listening to an interview with Matthew Desmond, who has a new book on poverty, and he was making this point. And it, it, I think it's like, we should always be making this point. When people say, you know, I worked hard to afford my home and and I n- never had any help from the government. The government doesn't give me any welfare. It's like every homeowner in the United States with a conventional 30-year mortgage, not a jumbo, is getting welfare from the federal government. And even jumbos wouldn't exist were it not for Fannie and Freddie. <laughs> so there you go. So it just, it's kind of mind-blowing the amount of money spent on this industry um, at the front end, um, buying up the mortgages, backing the mortgages. And then every year, you know, when everyone goes out and gets their big tax deduction on their mortgage, it's it. I believe it eclipses anything the federal government is spending, you know, to alleviate for so-called welfare benefits. It's just something to think about. But yeah, so the big picture here is that the banks, which do have the ability to you know, effectively advance mortgage payments to the GSEs if they're servicing loans and get, you know, get their money back eventually. Like, that's a perfectly good business for the banks to be in. In theory, they've all got out of that business. The reason they don't want to be servicing mortgages in general or servicing, you know, less than spectacularly great credit mortgages in particular is because the other thing that happened after the financial crisis was that there were these new... Basel liquidity rules um, got implemented in terms of like shoring up the banking sector. And that made servicing mortgages very capital intensive for banks. So there are almost no banks that service mortgages anymore. You know, they will set up like some off balance sheet entity to service mortgages rather than do it themselves because as a matter of like capital rules capital liquidity rules they they just can't afford to do it so what the basel rules did was it shored up the strength of the banks but it did so by making servicing into this industry that is incredibly unattractive to any bank and so yeah it's it's not going to go away but servicing is tough, right? And non-bank lending is tough, especially now. A bunch of those non-bank lenders are sh- shutting down because the number of mortgages is going down for obvious reasons. Um, and the thing is, they're not going to come back because the the thing that brings people into that market of non-bank lend- of non-bank lending is a fa- is really a refinancing boom, right? Refinancings are the cheap and easy and profitable way to make money in the mortgage market. Um, and no one is going to refinance for the foreseeable future. Like the vast majority of mortgages in America are below 3%. We're not going to get more new refinance mortgage rates below 3% anytime soon. And so because of that, there's not going to be a refinancing boom. And if there's not going to be a refinancing boom, then there's much less incentive for people to come into this market and spin up new non-bank lenders. So the banks are getting out. The non-banks are not coming in. And you wind up with this very thin, narrow industry, which is just not competitive and is cutting a lot of people out of buying a home. That's okay. Homes are overpriced now anyway. <laughs> maybe maybe, maybe that's the one silver lining here is that with fewer <laughs> lenders, home prices will come back down more quickly into the range of affordability. We can but hope. Yay! 
all you Slate Money homeowners, we hope that your home value plunges. What? <laughs> <laughs> Just don't move. <laughs> Let's take another break and talk about collectibles. All right, Elizabeth, you have thoughts about the market in collectibles. I, I do have thoughts, and partly because my seven-year-old is a prolific collector of Pokemon cards, which I, I can't believe are a thing again. Uh, but there was a time story about someone paying $27,500 for a sealed VHS tape of Rocky, because apparently uh, nostalgia for people our age, Gen Xers, um, you know, older millennials, uh, is, is driving sales of collectibles, specifically like pop culture things that are still in the original packaging. Collectibles is a weird area, right? We had a whole um, season of we called Slate Money Swag, where we where we talked about various different types of collectibles. I don't think we ever talked about um, VHS tapes, but, um, <laughs> but we definitely talked about you know things like Bitcoin and trading cards and sneakers and and that kind of stuff. And I can totally see this, right? Just on a sort of supply and demand basis, the number of VHS tapes that are still sealed and in their original packaging and like how would they have lived this long and why would people not have thrown them out or opened them or watched them or anything so it's this naturally very low supply um kind of thing and so where you get that people will start you know collecting and trading um and all power to them, I guess, if that's what they're into. It doesn't, like, it's not, the, the the bigger picture to me is actually the opposite direction, right? Which is we just saw a pair of Michael Jordan sneakers auctioned for 2.2 million, which was way lower than people were expecting. Like, they, we were to- told that they could go for, like, 4 million. There's another like set of sneakers that people have been whispering about like will these go for a hundred million dollars and i think the clear answer is no they won't um basically now we have exited the zerp world now that we've exited the, the the world of zero interest rates i think the idea of speculating on collectibles and like buying them in the expectation and hope that they will rise in price and you can flip them for profit um is much smaller than it was. And we're seeing that, you know, in the sneaker world, we're seeing that in the watch world where the price of Rolexes has come down by like 40%. Um, in general, I, I think the market in collectibles has, is, is reverting to a little bit more sensible. Yeah. What I thought was interesting about the Times piece is like what gets considered a collectible now. So like, and, and it, it is a very generational story because... I think it's aimed on the story is almost aimed at a Gen X audience. Like you thought this stuff was junk, but now it's valuable. And um, it has to just do with like a perspective and a nostalgia for the past. I think like, yeah, when we were growing up, no one was nostalgic for video cassettes or would think they would be worth $27,000 because we were just swimming in video cassettes and, and tapes and, and all the things now that are apparently worth money. Um, And now we've become, old and or I've become old I guess and I don't want to loop you guys into my journey there but <laughs> the things that were just whatever are now you know artifacts basically it reminded me of um did either of you read Station 11 by Emily St. John Mandel it was made into an HBO series which I haven't watched but it's a book about you know the apocalypse end of the world and in the book 
survivors create, they call it the Museum of Civilization. And it's in this like airport hangar and the Museum of Civilization just has like all the stuff that we think is just regular stuff now is like newspapers, Palm Pilots, old iPhones, credit cards, and like, you know, the kids that were born in the apocalypse and don't know civilization look at the credit cards and they're like, gee, wow, you know, like the stuff we just had when we were younger is now museum pieces, essentially. That was the message I took from this story. (laughs) The thing which I couldn't stop thinking about was that as someone who, you know, is old enough to remember the age of... um, brand new movie VHS tapes, they were always unaffordably expensive to me. Like they mentioned in the book, like this, this thing was only 40 or 60 or whatever, however many dollars when it was new. And you're like, wait, but that was an enormous amount of money back then. And the whole point was that they were never really marketed at the consumer market, right? The people buy, spending $60 on a VHS tape were blockbuster video and the video rental stores who could then make a profit by renting that VHS tape out at 2 or $3 a pop, you know, enough times to be able to make money. Um, so if you wanted to watch a movie, you know, one of those movies, you'd go down to your blockbuster and you'd rent a movie for $2.00. Um, and you never really owned anything. And the idea that, and yeah, there was always that like option. Like, if, if you really love the movie, then you can buy the tape itself. And then I guess it would pay off if you bought, if you watched the movie 30 times or something. And you're like, but who does that? It was, that wasn't the point of selling the movies for 60 bucks, right? They were never really sold to a consumer. I mean, that kind of changed with DVDs when the company started making money from actually selling DVDs. The price right. point was a little yeah, bit lower. And that, but that's yeah. the whole point. And that's, and that's the reason why the DVDs aren't collectible, because there are so many more of them. Yes, but probably they will be at some point. <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to remember if, if we owned any movies that we bought retail. I feel like my childhood was full of grainy taping of things that were on TV. Mm-hmm. So at one point, I think we we taped Jaws, and then my brothers and I watched it 468 times after that, but we never bought the movie, you know? And I believe you were able to do that because of a, a Supreme Court ruling that allowed for time shifting and taping. And the only reason I bring that up is because I wanted to make the point that people collect all kinds of weird things, like some people collect Nazi memorabilia, for example. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I'm referring to uh, reporting about um, Clarence Thomas's friend Harlan Crow, which who was reported to have a big collection of, I guess, Nazi memorabilia, including two actual paintings by Adolf Hitler and a yes, signed copy of Mein Kampf, which is Correct, a totally yes. normal thing to do Very if you uh, really hate Nazis. But people do collect all kinds of things. That was just my point. Yeah, no, I mean it is it is legitimately a thing that is collected, but. <laughs> It's it's definitely a weird and, you know, small world of dealers and collectors in that world because no one likes to talk about it too much. And, I mean, I didn't know what to make of, again, to go back to this New York Times piece, like, there's this company called Heritage and it used to just sell, like, coins and baseball cards and comics. And now it sells, like, 50 other things, you know, including an, an original, a first edition iPhone and its packaging goes for like thousands of dollars and stuff like that. I didn't quite know what to make of the explosion in the kinds of things people are collecting. It kind of seemed like, like anything that's that's by definition super scarce is, is ostensibly a collector's item. 
Yeah, the, it's it's a scarcity thing, and it's also just an internet thing, right? That like, if there are twenty five people on planet Earth who are interested in buying some rare object, up until basically the advent of heritage auctions, there was no place that they would be able to, you know, collect and bid on things and consign things and create a market because they were far too geographically dispersed. No one knew who they were. There weren't specialists who knew who they were, who could phone them up. There weren't dealers in these things because dealers didn't know who these people were. And now you can create a market much more easily um, because you have this sort of central clearinghouse called heritage auctions and you, you know they do do they bought like a big handbag auction house and that kind of stuff they do the more um conventional stuff but yeah like it, it used to be ebay but ebay w- didn't quite work as well for authenticating and that kind of stuff and so it's like a slightly higher end version of ebay i guess it's i don't i don't think it's um I don't think it's that new. I think Mm -hmm. that this kind of stuff has been happening quietly on eBay for a while. You know, it's been happening on places like Discogs for records and stuff like that, you know, for a while. And now it's just expand. It's just slightly more visible because it's happening in one place without all of the other noise that you see on eBay. Yeah. And I like this, too, because it seems like people are buying this stuff for the love of the stuff. Like the guy who bought the Rocky tape was like, a Rocky fan. <laughs> it's not like with NFTs where it felt like during that boom, you know, people were just buying to buy or like to make money. This isn't a market where making money is the sole object. You know, it's like a market based in love. We like to Fans. hoard objects from our childhood. Yeah. And nostalgia. It's, it's not, it's about like liking the object. Like, you know, it's not buying the painting and putting it in a, a warehouse or something. Right. Although they say in the piece that some people are buying these objects and putting them in warehouses, which is sad. And then they send you a picture of your sneakers or whatever, which, what? Why are you doing that? (laughs) (laughs) Should we have a numbers round? Emily, do you have a number? Um, Yeah, okay. (laughs) Are you going to reluctantly come up with a number? Well, I feel like I spoiled it a little, but my number is $133,363. That is the amount of money billionaire conservative real estate guy Harlan Crow paid to buy a house in Savannah, Georgia, and two vacant lots down the road that the house was owned by Clarence Thomas and his siblings, and it's where Clarence Thomas's mom lived. And it was just another blockbuster ProPublica report that came out this week. Um, so the guy paid $133,000 to buy and gave the cash over to Clarence Thomas and his relatives for this home. And the mother still lives in the home. And ProPublica wasn't able to determine if if she pays any kind of rent or anything. But they did find out that she is that the home has been, like, lavishly renovated. And this is a Supreme Court justice. Um, my number is 20%, which is the proportion of festival goers in the Netherlands who say they're going to be doing more drugs this year <laughs> when they go to music <laughs> festivals. Um, like, 51% are going to... Uh, you know, doing drugs, but 20% are doing more drugs than normal because... So they've been restraining themselves up to this point? This is this is an inflation thing. 
Um, basically, the Lowlands Festival, which is the big one, that's where like Billie Eilish is playing and Florence and the Machine and Underworld, um, that jacked up its price to 300 euros this year. And they're like, yeah, we understand things are more expensive than inflation, but that just means we have less money. And the quote was, for 20 euros, you can have an ecstasy pill and a whole day of water at a festival. With beer and food, you spend three times as much. So, like, <laughs> That's true. It, it, so you just like, basically... Inflation is causing an uptick in, you know, drug usage. I mean, that's why people switch to heroin from pills, because it's cheaper. There's been there's been a massive decline in um, marijuana prices over the pa- past couple of years, and it's the one place where we don't see the inflation. And so, if you have negative mm-hmm. inflation marijuana and positive inflation eggs, it stands to reason that people are going to be doing more marijuana and less eggs. <laughs> what do you breakfast. eat after you take the marijuana? I guess no one was really taking the, using the, the marijuana and then eating a bunch of eggs. <laughs> <laughs> I've got the munchies. Someone make me a fried egg. <laughs> Elizabeth. Uh, my number is one, uh, one dollar specifically, which is what you would pay for a flight from Manhattan to East Hampton. In an eight-seater Cessna, in theory, from a company called Tailwind Air, which does charge an annual fee of $4,495 a year. But if you're part of that program, they just want to fill seats on these things. So they have a new... Oh, uh, wait, so, so you get yeah. to fly for $1 if you have already paid them $5,000? Yes. But... <laughs> the, the, five, the thing is, the $5,000 is kind of like an annual men- membership. And so uh, if they have extra seats between 24 and 36 hours of departure, depending on which airport or, you know, which flight, um, they just want to get rid of the seats. But they're not technically allowed to give them away for free because of some aviation booking rules. So they'll charge a dollar and four dollars in taxes. And <gasps> so... Uh, this is a Bloomberg article and did note that you're most likely to get a dollar flight though from Manhattan to Boston because they just run more. But and yet, I still can't quite get over this five thousand dollars a year that you also need to pay. I, like you know, that's a lot of. Well, if you're the kind of person who wants to fly private <laughs> from Manhattan to East Hampton or whatever, but also potentially anywhere else for a dollar, you know. <laughs> It, it just seems like, it just seems like a, a, a weirdly unlikely Venn diagram of like people who like to fly private and also pe- bargain hunters who will fly somewhere random just because it's cheap. But maybe. Well, if you weren't planning on going somewhere for the weekend and suddenly you have, you can take three friends because you, you can also invite friends under this program. I mean, if... Any Slate Money listeners has ever taken advantage of this? You know, what's the cheapest private jet flight you've ever managed to buy? Let us know on <laughs> Slate Money at Slate.com. Otherwise, yeah, we'll be back on Monday with Slate Money Succession. Many thanks to all of you for writing in. And many thanks to Patrick Fort for producing. <laughs>